Oh yeah, you know what this is. This is the sound of an uncertain future. Welcome to the Risk Topic Podcast. I am your host, Martin Rook, and this is the show that stands at the crossroads between science, health, technology, and society. How are we doing there, ladies and gentlemen? You good? I'm good. Uh, I have to uh, start the show with a bit of an apology I went on to SoundCloud today and it said that the last episode I put up was about 20 days ago. So forgive me for that. I've been a little bit snowed under in trying to write my ethics form. That's the form that allows me to begin conducting my actual research. Other than that, I went off to Amsterdam for a few days, which was great fun. Ended up watching Wonder Woman in the Chazinski Theatre. But one interesting thing about Amsterdam is you can tell the difference in how particular societies address risks. It was actually quite funny. Here in the UK, we look at what's known as the precautionary principle in that all of our policies are designed to be highly cautious of risk in that if there is a threat that a particular hazard could cause harm, we seem to regulate against it. You see this with things like, uh, well, the laws governing car crossings, especially, you know, if there's a red light, cars don't go. If it's a red light for you, the car, and you do go beyond it, you're probably going to get a fine or something like that if you get caught. In Amsterdam, the red light is more of sort of a, a suggestion that maybe you shouldn't really go, but if you feel like it, go for it. And especially how cyclists seem to have the right of way, even over pedestrians. Coupled that with the fact that Amsterdam, as we all know, is incredibly liberal with its position on marijuana. So you have a bunch of really stoned tourists walking around these streets where there is no real policy precaution stopping people from, quote unquote, well, jumping the red light. Yet it doesn't seem to be too many accidents. Everyone seems to take road safety under their belt. Although in saying that, I did see a a cycle accident where one guy tried to overtake another and it all went terribly wrong and there was shopping everywhere because his his plastic bag hit a tree. Ah, it was was great fun. But then I come back and I see in the newspapers the, the tragedy that has come to be known as the Grenfell Fire. And this is just one of those things that As much of a tragedy as it was, it is also quite interesting to observe as someone who researches risk. And it does mean that, yes, to some degree, you do separate yourself from the tragedy. But to look at the role of the media in trying to construct some sort of sense of what happened has been one part validating of my research and second part really, really, really interesting. So let's start off what do we know i think it has almost been confirmed now that the fire started off due to a faulty fridge freezer in one of the flats on the fourth floor now this in itself is uncommon but not highly improbable electronic products white goods they can catch fire they utilize electricity you do get times where there is a fault in the appliance and they do indeed catch on fire. And at this point, there's no one really to blame because this is the thing that we we as people want from society. We want convenience. We want the ability to keep our food 
refrigerated or frozen and not have it go to waste. And if you're one of these people who sit there and go, see, we, we should just go back to the Stone Age. Technology is evil. Uh, all right, all right, okay. You gotta live in a cave for a week. Let me know how that goes, guys. But this does underlie our approach to safety in the home. It almost seems to be that people believe that their appliances will work 100% efficiently until the day we get rid of them, that they won't break down and that there's no need to check your products for safety. Let's take, for example, any electronics you might have at your place of work, whether you're working retail, you're working an office job, you work in a factory, almost all of your appliances will be safety checked and you'll see the little safety check sticker. Yet no one seems to conduct a safety test of their home appliances. Now, of course, the big question is, was this a white good that the chap who was residing in the flat purchased or was it something that was given as a part of the tenancy agreement. I know there have been some flats I've moved into where the fridge, the freezer and all that stuff is is given. My, my flat here, the, the freezer and fridge were given to me, but I had to purchase my own washing machine, for example. Now, after the chap, I think it was a bloke anyway, after the chap identified that there was a fire, we can assume that maybe he had a fire alarm or, you know, was just lucky and, and woke up and saw his fridge freezer on fire he then left the premises and told his neighbors that you know there is a fire in my flat and i'm leaving this was for all intents and purposes and despite the tragedy that happened afterwards this was the correct thing to do evacuating the individual flat was a part of the fire safety procedure it was there the whole idea was that these flats when they were built in the 70s were designed to contain a fire to the one single location and allow fire crews to get to or get access to the property in order to extinguish the fire. I read that what the fire crews don't want is a full building evacuation. So it'd be, you know, the firemen going up against everyone else coming down because again if you're at the top floor and you hear a fire alarm you're gonna panic you're gonna flee there may actually be more death and, and more injury in response to a false alarm or you know a very small fire just where you have all of these people rushing to get out we've seen many many crush deaths in uh stadium evacuations and, and stuff like that throughout the years now why didn't the chap decide to fight the fire himself well this is where we get to the issue of legalese and best practice the fire safety procedure states that you as a resident leave if you as a resident do anything else you are then accepting liability for any damage that occurs. Now, again, it's, it's also interesting, you know, we in the UK, we don't tend to purchase fire extinguishers for our properties, and we also don't have our landlords purchase the, the fire extinguishers. But even then, with fire extinguishers, it's not as simple as you, you may believe. You know, you don't just have the one fire extinguisher you got water extinguishers carbon dioxide powder and foam and each of those particular different types are designed for different fires given that the fridge freezer is an electronic appliance you wouldn't want to be going to use a water extinguisher on an electric appliance it, you know it'd be like dousing your toaster in water when it's on not good so there is the the 
possibility, the, the probability, the potential for more damage both to the individual and to the property if the chap was to try and fight the fire using a fire extinguisher. And yes, in this one instance, there may have been a wholesale saving of lives. But you've got to remember that this was an odd duck of a fire. If, let's say, for example, it was a, a city that caught on fire because of something stupid, it'd probably be that the council would have fire protection insurance, or I say the council like I know who actually owns the, 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 the block. But in, in, in the insurance policy, it would be protection against the fire itself. But the second you start adding in water damage in an attempt to tackle the fire, well, that might not be covered under the insurance policy. And even then, the chap who used, if he did, the, the chap who would go on to use the fire extinguisher is not a trained firefighter. And this is where we get bogged down in the in the legalese. An insurance company wouldn't want to pay out for any damage that may have been incurred due to someone's untrained, inexpert use of a fire extinguisher. Yeah, insurance, and, and particularly fire insurance, is a very curious thing. I remember a couple of years back, I was working at TK Maxx as a job experience thing, and the place previously had had a, a fire and it wasn't too big but as per the insurance company's request well they say request demands under the insurance policy any stock that was within the premises had to be destroyed even if it hadn't been touched by the fire so yeah they, they bought a chainsaw and shredded all the clothes because that's what the policy demanded so Going back to the Grenfell Fire story, the chap left. He obviously didn't want to be in a room with a with a, a freezer that was on fire. Now we know that the fire spread, and it seems to be increasingly made obvious that it was the outer cladding that was ignited. Now what the cladding was is essentially a beautification foam panels that was attached to the outside of the wall. There's been reasonable amounts of speculation that not only does these panels make the, well, give the building a bit of a facelift, really, taking it away from that 70s brutalist concrete structure and making it just seem a little bit new and, and contemporary, but also it would act as insulation, keeping the flats a little bit warmer during the winter, reducing the need for residents to pay more in heating bills and ultimately lowering emissions targets as per EU directives. Now it's these pieces of cladding which have come under huge scrutiny because apparently going back to a 2009 report written by the fire service these panels when they when they get hot they sort of warp and, and bend and they split and it presents the less fire resistant core to obviously the heat and, and the flames and that allows these these cladding panels to set on fire this was made worse by the fact that this there was space between the cladding and the wall this produced a, a cavity between the cladding and the wall and it acted sort of as a chimney that allows not just the smoke to go up between the cladding and the wall but it also allows the heat to travel up between them now if we think back to the 
King's Cross fire disaster. We know that back when they had the wooden uh, escalators, that there was a small fire that appeared on one of them. And what happened was the heat traveled up the angled surface. It was only a small fire at the beginning. You know, people were sort of like, oh, it's not that big. Obviously, we need to evacuate, but it's not that big. And then all of a sudden was bam, there was this massive flashpoint and fire roared up the escalator at King's Cross into the ticket hall and caused quite a bit of loss of life. If you look in the ticket hall, you can actually find a clock uh, that was stopped at the very time that this happened. And what happened was the wood on the escalator, because it was at such an angle, the heat traveled up the escalator, essentially, not the fire, the heat, and it superheated the wood, getting it to the point that it could combust and ignite at a rapid pace. And I think that's what we'll find happened at Grenfell. There was a superheating of these cladding panels going up the side of the building until they cracked, they split, and the inside foam ignited. Now, again, you could ask the question of, well, why wasn't there building-wide sprinklers and smoke alarms? And on the surface, that seems like a totally logical question. However, let's not forget that through the construction of Grenfell, there was the assurance that there is no need for these things, given the self-contained structures of each flat. And beyond that, sprinklers and fire alarms only really work in situations where smoke is highly improbable or rather it's more likely that the cause of smoke is fire and when we're dealing with residences that's not always the case i mean for example my fire alarm goes off when I make toast. How many people here, you know, you've tried cooking and it's just gone wrong. You know, you're left with charred little black things in your pan and your, your kitchen's filled up with smoke. Could you imagine how many times over 40 or so years that one particular tower block would have to have been evacuated because of someone's poor cooking skills or someone having a house party and they're just being one too many smokers in the particular premises and if we double that up with sprinklers well how sensitive do you make the sprinklers where do you put them do you put them inside flats so because someone burnt the sunday dinner on the 30th floor all my electronics get broken do you put them in the corridors and in the stairways presenting a potential slip hazard if there is the need for evacuation would we also get to the point that People just get desensitized to the sound of fire alarms. Would there be the point that, you know, again, you'd be up on floor 30, you hear the fire alarm go off, you go, ugh, some dickhead's burnt the dinner again. I'm not gonna waste my time getting it, getting myself out of the place. I'm gonna have to run down the flights of stairs because the escalator, the elevators aren't working, get soaked by the sprinklers, risk breaking my ankle for nothing. And even then, if there were sprinklers and there were fire alarms, you would simply just be getting in the way of the firefighters trying to come up the stairs. Now, again, this does raise questions as to why there isn't external fire escapes. And again, I can I can see the, the answer because it was one of those things that people were complaining about. They, they tried to evacuate, especially on the upper floors. But by this point, there was so much smoke that they just 
couldn't get down the stairs. But obviously, if you have 30 floors of external fire escapes, well, that would then constitute as a fall hazard. You're assuming that, that people would not do anything stupid 30 floors up on an external metal fire escape. So at the end of the day, the big question remains, whose fault is it? And it has been fantastic. I mean, this has been a work of art, ladies and gentlemen, to try and reframe this as a problem of austerity, a problem of Theresa May's government. And it kind of seems to be, well, not really. The tower blocks themselves were, was originally built in 1973. Back then, Chelsea and Kensington was a Labour constituency. Those houses were built in the brutalist structures that we see now. And brutalism is not a pleasant architectural style. And so throughout the years, people have made calls for it to be beautified. And the government listened and said, OK, we can do that. We can put these cladding blocks on the outside. It makes things look pretty. Not only that, it does help reduce emissions. Climate change is a thing that the general public seem to be quite upset about and they want change. So that's two birds, one stone, really. Beyond this, we are being told that the build that the, the flats themselves are isolated individual units in the case of a fire and that there is a certificate of fire resistance for these cladding blocks now yes these blocks were tested and concerns were raised by the fire department but again this goes back to the desensitization of risk within a society that lives on the precautionary principle or rather you could argue that of course the fire department would find a problem with the panels because they look for fire risks it'd be the same as a parent group being concerned about marijuana use in the local area you have a lobby group a specialist interest group pitching their concerns about their chosen risk to essentially professional bureaucrats within government who have to weigh up all of these risks from each of the specialist interest group and decide which one to pay attention to. Not only will they have the concerns of the fire service, they'll also have concerns from residency groups saying that the blocks look ugly and breeds crime. They'd also have concerns from environmental groups saying the blocks are not energy efficient and we're contributing to climate change. Now ask yourself, if you're a politician, which of those concerns do you rank as most important? And honestly, I don't know. It would be very, very interesting to look at a politician's decision making, but which one could be seen to have the most direct effect on the people of the local area? Beautification. Not only does it affect the residents who say that they have to, you know, live and go back home to a dreary looking residency that could promote crime especially through the broken windows theory but again you're going to have other constituents of the local area who look at a massive tower block and go that looks friggin ugly especially as you know we have westfield looks all nice big ugly tower block who's going to be the ones who say that they want to change up the tower block they 
by they, I mean the politicians, whatever politician sits there and says, we're going to turn this eyesore into something beautiful, chances are they'll be the ones to get elected. And again, it tackles not just climate change by adding these panels, it also helps the poorer people living within the tower block because they don't have to pay as much for energy. So for a local council, the cladding works. More of a fire risk, sure, but less of a crime risk, less contribution to climate change. And so the dice was cast, the bet was made, and everyone sort of come up short on this one. And it led to the tragic loss of 80 lives and who knows what other health complaints for years and years going onwards and even now the cladding blocks themselves are undergoing tests to see whether they do indeed fit in with UK and EU regulations and it'll be very very interesting to see that if these blocks do meet the regulations and that the regulations just simply did not address this possibility then the big question is is well who is to blame then if everybody within reason did what they were roughly supposed to do then surely this is just a chaotic element of the universe that tells us that no matter how much precaution you want to tow nothing can stop chaos when it's your time to go it is indeed your time to go and so while newspapers and media pundits will sit there and blame austerity because that sells to their audience and that day of rage protest was designed by that by any means necessary group you have to wonder how much of this energy is being used to capitalize on the bodies of the dead and how much is being used to rationally and logically challenge the procedures that are put in place to tackle risk and even when the utmost assurances have been made that make something like Grenfell so 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 unlikely we've almost become blind as a society to the fact that something like Grenfell still can happen and that just because something is unprobable doesn't make it impossible so again, my condolences for the victims of the fire, my condolences to the families. It'd be interesting to see what lessons are decided that we should learn from all of this. And chances are, it won't be the right ones. Anyway, I, I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as you, you possibly can. Feel free to like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. And I will see you all again next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye.